You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Paris. We've made it to Paris. My name's Lionel Burney. This is the cycling podcast, the final episode of the Men's Tour de France. I'm with Richard Abraham. Hello, Richard. Hello, Lionel. Where are we, Richard? We are about 500 meters away from Cleopatra's Needle. Is that it's Cleopatra's Needle? We're on the Champs Elysees. We are just as they come around that final bend for the sprint with a few laps to go. Rough old surface, but actually quite a smooth surface for cobbles, isn't it? But small city centre cobblestones arranged in kind of wave pattern, it looks like to me, and been sort of tarmacked over over the years. Like, like gazillions of tonnes of chewing gum have just slowly filled in a few of the gaps. Uh, nobody says they're comfortable after three weeks of racing, though. I bet they're not. Well, the race has just under 30 kilometres to go. The three riders out in front, Nelson Oliveira of Movistar, Simon Clark of Israel Premier Tech and Frederic Frison of Lotto Destiny. Now, it's the final day of the Tour de France and all of our listeners will be waiting with bated breath for Daniel Freiber to announce his wine glass rating for this year's Tour de France. Will it be four? Will it be four and a half? Will it even be five? People will have to look out for Daniel's Twitter feed later. Freeboss is his handle. And we will no doubt discuss that in a future episode of the Cycling Podcast. But another final day tradition is that we run through the tour teams and give them a rating, just assess their performance over the last three weeks. And we're going to do that in this episode while we watch the stage unfold. So, Richard... I think we're going to run through the teams quite rapidly in reverse order and you can tell me whether I'm being harsh or not. I'm afraid I'm going to give 22nd place out of 22 to Total Energies. Not. I think that's that's a fair. They've, they've had a pretty anonymous tour apart from Mathieu Bourgodeau in a few good breaks. Top, he got a three, didn't he, in third place. Um, but considering what a French team comes into the tour for, pretty poor result I think especially as they have Peter Sagan riding his final Tour de France they also have a, also have Edvald Bosenhagen who did actually get into a break right back at the start on the opening weekend in the Basque Country but if there was a transparent jersey for most invisible team I'm afraid Total Energies would win it Bergado the honourable exception he had a very good second place finish at Belleville on Beaujolais and a third at Saint-Gervais kind of only just ahead of them really Arkea Samsic and they just about nudge into 21st place by virtue of getting a fair few breaks and then the last of the three teams that I'm awarding empty musettes is team DSM very difficult tour for them they lost Roman Bardet on stage 14 after a crash and the rest of them were no doubt observing a process that will stand them in good stead for future races but very few results to speak of here yeah I'd agree with that so Daniel's wine glass rating we're not going to infringe his copyright we're doing kind of musettes so the empty musettes have been awarded I hope the three teams find something useful to put in them Uh, next in my list and really we're, we're also factoring in what the teams would have expected coming into the tour so Movistar are next they lost Emric Mass on the opening stage in that crash with Richard Carapaz. Matteo Jorgensen was the one real bright spot. He had a great ride on the stage to Le Puy de Dom, where he was fourth. 
He was also third at Belleville on Beaujolais, but as we heard in his interview, he was pretty disappointed with that result. Absolutely no presence whatsoever on GC. Pretty unusual for Movistar. I mean, what can you slip into their musette for them, Richard? Oh, sort of a, a day-old rice cake, maybe, from the back of the bus in the fridge. Yeah, just, just really a, a, a team that just seemed to have just lose its way really Jorgensen was the bright spark but but as soon as he was out it, you know it's sort of no GC contenders um, nobody really quite with the form to get in a breakaway um, which we can we can discuss later it's not been at all for those sort of TV breaks has it it's been the strong guys that have been in the breaks you know they've won um, but for anybody not at the, their very best or, or one of the strongest riders in the bunch there's, there's been very little reward so yeah then we come to Antomarche, who lost Louis Menkes to a crash when he was hovering just outside the top 10. And knowing Menkes and the way he comes good in the final week of Grand Tours, he was probably on for a top 10 position. But uh, he was ruled out of the race. There was a second place for Georg Zimmermann on the day that Peo Bilbao won. The big disappointment, I guess, was that Binyam Gamay didn't really get the opportunities in the sprints. He was third in Bordeaux. That was his best result but a very quiet tour for Antomarche, really. So um, uh, perhaps, a, perhaps a fresh rice cake and a banana in their musette. Next up, Lotto Destiny, who kind of redeemed themselves in recent days with their breakaway antics, but no stage win, which they would have come in hoping for. Maybe Frederick Frison will spring a surprise. He's still in that three-man break there. Caleb Ewan out. A few reasonable finishes for him, but no stage win. I guess they gain an additional bid on of fresh water yeah, for the breakaway few, riding in the recent days. A, a few sour grapes in their musette, I think, with the, the way that Ewan left. And then a bit of, uh, you know, the, the manager, was it Stefan Hurlo, who, uh, you know, sort of really announced to the press he wasn't very impressed with Ewan's conduct on this year's tour and, and the, the manner in which he left. So saved by the victor. Well, that's the first of our teams assessed. We will keep an eye on the race and carry on our rundown a little bit. The team cars are clattering past us now, as you can hear. On our way into Paris today, we took a little detour because we were approaching the city from the east. So this is what we got up to on our way to the Champs-Élysées. Well, Lionel, you've, you've brought us to Paris, but where exactly in Paris are we? Well, we are in the Avenue Père Lachaise. Now, Père Lachaise is one of the largest, possibly the largest, but certainly the most famous cemetery in Paris. And it is the resting place of the likes of Honoré de Balzac, Beaumarchais, Molière, Maria Callas, the opera singer, Frédéric Chopin, uh, Edith Piaf, Marcel Proust, Oscar Wilde, Jim Morrison, personal kind of, I was going to say hero of mine, but when I was a teenager, I was really into the doors. He died in Paris in 1970. And uh, I thought, well, we could come here to pay our respects to a Tour de France champion and a very fine writer. So should we go and have a look? So we've come in Port Gambetta. Gambetta. 
and we need to go straight ahead then and on the left Columbarium Crematorium mm, yeah so past plot 88 to plot 87 yeah. oh, it's that big building there on the on the left there trickier to find in 74 don't really want to go trampling through we don't really know precisely what we're looking for whether it's one of these bigger ones it's all quite overgrown in here isn't it quite a large area we could be here for a long time didn't they? Ow. Ow. something's stinging me Well, Richard, we've come out of the cemetery now and it's quite a smart neighbourhood next door to the cemetery, isn't it? We're outside a cafe where we've ordered a couple of cold brew coffees. Maybe we'd best not tell our listeners what the, what the bill came to for two coffees, but it's that sort of neighbourhood. It is very middle class, it feels. There's a, quite a nice looking restaurant over there. Um, but we went into the cemetery to pay our respects to Laurent Fignon, who won the Tour de France 40 years ago in 1983. I thought, well, it's the 40th anniversary of his first Tour win. He won again in 84, of course. And, well, when we got in there, uh, I knew that his ashes were in the columbarium, but uh, it, it actually said it was private for mourning family members only. I mean, it didn't feel inappropriate to go in there and, and have a look and we, we found a little plaque with Laurent Fignon's picture on there's a picture from when he was wearing the yellow jersey in the Tour de France and also one from the commentary box from his later years as a co-commentator for French television which by all accounts he was very very good at and then we went looking for Jim Morrison and found the tomb of Jim Morrison and rock fans have left mementos and photographs of the doors it was Jim Morrison is, is perhaps the most visited isn't it the most, it's the, the, the kind of key pilgrimage site in this cemetery isn't it um, and it's the only one that we came across with, with crowd barriers around it, loads of stickers and uh, padlocks affixed to them and um, someone was sat on the ground with her headphones in, I assume listening to Jim's music um, and a whole ex a very eccentric collection of objects have been placed on his grave a sort of plastic iguana lots of painted stones a few plectrums and yeah quite a that would have been a lizard he was the lizard king of course Jim Morrison come on um, I, when I got my first job in journalism and I got my first paycheck uh, slightly embarrassed to admit this but I went and spent pretty much all of it on buying the complete back catalogue of the Doors albums on CD including the really strange ones where they set some of Morrison's poetry to music posthumously uh, small link back to the start of my journalism career but uh, Laurent Fignon is there because he was born in Paris, grew up in Paris and then the family moved to uh, I think the uh, Chartreuse Valley. It was uh, certainly somewhere on the outskirts of Paris and that's where he got into cycling. And well, we also went in search of the grave of Antoine Blondin who was 
as Francois was saying in our Kilometre Zero about L'Equipe, kind of the person that made sports writing and particularly cycling writing in the pages of L'Equipe kind of cool to read. He was a poet and a playwright, Blondin, and a lot of his reportage was inspired by that. Um, I imagine to compare some of his writing to the sort of archetypal modern-day sports writing, which is quite blow-by-blow, formulaic and um, factual. Blondin was very, uh, very literary, wasn't he? So it's a it's a tradition that's carried on very much in in French writing about the tour today. The the Prix Jacques Godet, um, which rewards the sort of the finest writing in in the French language about cycling. And Blondin was the the, the the guy that started that really, and by all accounts a very um, a very charismatic person himself. You can I remember watching a few videos on I think on YouTube of of him, a real kind of raspy, sort of tobacco ruined voice, um, just a very seemed like a very opinionated um quite uh, what's the most sort of forthright almost sort of uh, bubbling personality even just through the lens you could feel that and i think that was the sort of thing that you got across through his writing very clear opinions and forthright views on things and that's what he read francois thomaso of course won the prix jacques godet so he followed in the footsteps um but i wanted to just talk a little bit about laurent fignon because that 1983 tour de france that he won at the first attempt he was 22 years old he was the kind of Tadej Pogacar of his era really and as I say born in Paris brought up in the 17th arrondissement which is pretty central and then uh, moved out to the suburbs and turned professional in the early 1980s for the very famous Renault team run by Cyril Guimard and got his chance at the 1983 tour largely because Bernardino who had won in 78, 79, 81 and 82 missed the race because he had a knee injury, tendonitis and it was a kind of controversial-ish tour win for Fignon because, well, Sean Kelly took the yellow jersey for the first and only time of his career on the first day in the Pyrenees and uh, he told a funny story that the Belgian family that he lived with Herman and Elise Nice were on the race at that time and they took his yellow jersey to Lourdes to kind of have it blessed for good luck. Uh, it didn't work terribly well because the next day, a big, big mountain stage, he lost 10 minutes. That was the day that Robert Miller won his first stage of the Tour de France into Bagnères de Luchon, but it was Pascal Simon, the eldest of four Simon brothers who rode professionally, who took the yellow jersey. Fignon moved up to second place, four minutes, 22 behind, so quite a gap uh, but Pascal Simon into yellow and looked like you know, a strong favourite, he was an established pro, looked like he might win the Tour de France, as a little side note his three brothers well Regis and Jerome each won stages in the Tour and Francois the youngest wore the yellow jersey for three days in 2001 anyway, Simon's spell in the yellow jersey was kind of cursed really because he crashed the very next day fractured his shoulder blade and as a result of that the tour fell into a strange period of kind of suspended animation because well it's still the custom now isn't it if the yellow jersey has a problem a crash or a mechanical the custom is don't attack the yellow jersey right well the problem was that Simon was kind of a lame duck riding with this you know very painful injury 
and the stages were kind of flat. Uh, there were climbs, but Simon was able to cling on, and everyone had their eyes on the stage 15 time trial. Uh, coincidentally, went to Le Puy de Dom, which we of course visited again this year. Simon lost 5 minutes 10 to the stage winner, but remarkably kept hold of the yellow jersey by 52 seconds, and so this kind of uneasy sort of truth um, persisted. No one wanted to attack the yellow jersey outright and make themselves very unpopular. Vignon clawed back another 12 seconds on the stage to Saint-Étienne, kind of by default really, Simon just kind of lost contact. And then finally on stage 17, after riding seven stages with this painful fracture, the stage that was going to go over the Granier, the Grand Coucheron, the Glandon and up to Alpe d'Huez was just too much. And Simon pulled out of the race, which meant that Fignon inherited the yellow jersey. And then he kind of put it to bed by winning the time trial at Dijon on the penultimate day. So a kind of a strange tour. And when we were talking yesterday about you know the possibility of someone making themselves very unpopular by denying Thibaut Pinot a stage win these customs are as old as the hills in the Tour de France aren't they mm. I remember reading Laurent Fignon's autobiography which is, is I'd highly recommend reading it it's called we, we Were Young and Carefree and there was a quote on the back of it where Fignon recalled a conversation with a member of the public and, and the member of the public said, oh, Laurent Fignon, you're the guy who lost the tour by eight seconds. And Fignon said, no, monsieur, I'm the guy who won it twice. And I think in Fignon's... How we remember Fignon, we, we jump immediately to the 1989 tour. He's the guy who got beaten by eight seconds in the time trial in Paris. But they're overlooked, aren't they, a little bit, these tours, 40 years ago, 83, and then 84 again to come back and defend it when he was only 23. Yeah, I mean, he absolutely dominated in 84. He won five stages. Uh, Bernardino was in the race, but was perhaps not at his very best. Uh, but then Fignon had his difficulties as well. He missed the 85 tour, pulled out in 86 with uh, injury. He won a stage in the mountains in 87, but then quit again in 1988. And he was quite an irascible character when he was racing, Fignon. There's a famous kind of video clip of him in 88, Everyone knew he was going to pull out of the tour and the press motorbikes hung back to capture the moment that he put his foot on the ground and, and Fignon lost his rag, pulled his bidon out of his bottle cage and you know, hurled it. Um, he won the Prix Citron, I think, a few times for being the most unhelpful rider to the journalists. But as you say, that 89 tour kind of did, unfortunately, define his career. The ding-dong battle between Le Monde and Fignon was extraordinary. Fignon went into the final time trial with a 50-second lead. There was the whole controversy about Le Monde using the triathlon bars. Uh, Fignon had saddle sores. You know, he was kind of on his last legs. Remember, he'd won the Giro earlier in the year, so it really was a, a big comeback from Fignon where everyone focuses on the comeback from Le Monde, who'd come back from the, uh, the shooting incident that almost cost him his life. And yeah, as you say, losing the tour by just eight seconds, the closest ever, closest ever tour. And he kind of played out his days as a super domestique for the Gatorade team and Gianni Bugno and, and won a stage of his final tour in 1993 before retiring. And then, you know, a, a kind of tragically short retirement for him because he was diagnosed with cancer in 2009 and died in 2010 shortly after his 50th birthday. Mm. And another quote as well, I think, um, which sticks in the memory, um, perhaps sums up Fignon the man after, after the, he'd been a bike racer. Um, he wrote 
that uh, he wasn't afraid of dying, but he he loved life. He loved living life like a good Frenchman. I think were his words, and um, that's always stuck in the memory. Really, is uh, I, I never met the guy, but but Lionel, you've you've been sort of teasing me with this story of um, <laughs> of playing golf with Laurent Fignon. So maybe now now's the time where you can. Uh... Yeah, I did play golf with Laurent Fignon. As a result of our colleague Edward Pickering, who at the time was working for Cycle Sport magazine, and he wanted to interview Fignon, and famously, Fignon didn't want to dwell on his racing career in interviews. He was very reluctant to talk about his cycling career, even though you know he has continued with a career in cycling. He actually owned Paris-Nice for a couple of years. He bought it from the Lulio family. It ran into financial difficulties. He ended up having to sell it to ASO in 2002 after just a couple of editions. But then, as I say, he uh, he became a, a, a very kind of um, authoritative but also quite um, esoteric summariser of the tour on French television. Ed wanted to talk to him about his career and stressed that he didn't want to just focus on 89, which might well have been one of the reasons why Fignon didn't like talking about his own career because... You know, that would be the go-to opening subject. And in the end, in the course of some negotiations, Fignon said, well, actually, Ed had ascertained that Fignon was a very keen golfer. So Ed made the offer. If, if we bring you over to London and we get you, um, or, you know, take you for a round of golf, will you do an interview about your cycling career? And he agreed. And he came over on the Eurostar. And I ended up making up a four ball with... Ed Pickering, Simon Richardson and Laurent Fignon at Hampton Court Palace golf course and Fignon was everything you would expect he, he didn't say anything in English all day except for one thing which I'll tell you about in a moment he was quite a grumpy golfer when you know the ball didn't go where he wanted it to go uh, you know the, a friend of mine once described me as being the ladybird book of body language. You can tell immediately from my sort of body shape how I'm feeling. And Fignon was exactly the same. On the front nine, um, I almost took his head off with a completely shanked shot out of the rough. And he did a kind of almost cartoonish duck to get out of the way of my flying golf ball. And I think from that moment on, he was a bit wary. But um, I managed to birdie the par five on the... Um, the front nine while he was having a bit of a thrash about in the long grass but then he got his game together and he put together a real run of excellent holes had a lovely swing and on the second of the par fives which was towards the end I was really falling apart a bit and I actually picked my ball up and just walked uh, admitted defeat whereas he had a putt for an eagle missed it but still made birdie and as uh, he picked his ball out of the hole and walked over to me, he said the only English he'd said all day, which was, no birdie for you this time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, that's the Laurent Fignon that I remember. A good golfer, but one who uh, kind of wore his heart on his sleeve. You could almost always tell how he, was, how he was feeling just from the way he was walking down the fairway. To go back to, to his resting place in the... In the the Columbarium in, in Père Lachaise, it's you know there, there is one one small picture of him racing, but the biggest picture there is of a smiling forty-something-year-old, you know, and that's that's sort of how he how he will be remembered now, and it's that that yeah, it's quite nice to see that. It's a remarkable place. I wasn't really it, it certainly wasn't what I was expecting. I, I was a little bit 
um, unsure about it. it. The idea of coming to a cemetery to visit famous graves does, didn't really appeal to me. I wouldn't come here on my own, I don't think. And I was expecting it to be a little bit, a little bit gaudy, maybe with tour groups or you know, guided tours and that sort of thing. But it, but it wasn't at all. Quite sombre and quite heavy, but also quite beautiful. It's a sort of city in miniature, really, walled off from living Paris. And and you know, as you sort of wander these little alleyways, little byways between the tombs and these amazing Gothic, Gothic memorials, sort of standing tall to make the most of the space, I presume. And um, it's almost like a, a like walking down a Parisian street, but sort of through the generations, you have, you know, the wealthy family over there with their quite sort of showy cemetery and or sorry showy tomb, which has had a lot of money spent on it. And then, you know, we were looking for for Antoine Blondin, not a grave that an awful lot of people visit, evidently. And you're sort of yeah, it's almost like you're looking for him on a street, you know, and sort of peering through. And it's it's a remarkable place. I mean, it does leave you feeling quite heavy and quite sort of um, uh, contemplative I think maybe um, and yeah and well Antoine Blondin's uh, gravestone is his name is his signature in gold isn't it which yeah. is quite a nice touch and as you say those those kind of wide boulevards they're almost Paris-Roubaix style cobble sections aren't they that could almost be the Carrefour de l'Arbre in there Exactly, yeah. It's, um, yeah, not everyone's bag, is it, this sort of thing? Um, but it, it doesn't feel like it's on the Paris tourist trail at all, which is actually, for Paris, quite nice. Well, from one stretch of cobblestones in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, we ought to get ourselves into the centre of the city and the cobblestones of the Champs-Élysées, which is where the final stage of the Tour de France will be taking place later on this afternoon. The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. They've been with us since the 2016 Giro d'Italia and we are very, very grateful to them for their support. They've fueled us all the way from the Basque Country to Paris and they will continue fueling the cycling podcast through the Tour de France fam as well. Go to scienceinsport.com to check out the full range of Science in Sport products. We are here just adjacent to the Champs-Élysées, Richard, and that break is still just about out in front with, what's that now, under 18 kilometres to go, is it? Yeah, they're just coming up to uh, just a lap and a half to go, 10k to go, and it looks like the break has just been caught, maybe three seconds the gap now. Lizzie Banks sent in a question she wanted answering. Has the break ever survived on the Champs-Élysées? I can remember the last time was 2005 when Alexander Vinukarov one and leapfrogged over I think it was Levi Leipheimer in the GC as a result of that uh, stage win and time uh, that he gained what about other years Richard yeah five five other occasions um, remarkably three times in a row between 77 and, uh, and 79 thanks to Anna Mele uh, Jerry Knateman Dutch sprinter rider and uh, 
about now you know of course being Bernard there in the breaking away um, and well a couple of times since Jeff Pierce in 87 and Eddie Senior in 1994 it's not going to happen today is it I thought there might be a bit more of a chance if the rain had really come down in buckets but it's it, it's very very unlikely and of course the Champs-Élysées has hosted the finish of the Tour de France since 1975 and won't do next year because the Olympics will be in Paris and so the finish will be in Nice so this is the last chance to see this spectacular in Paris for at least a couple of years. Uh, we assume it will be back. Uh, the Paris stage and the Tour de France are kind of hand in glove, aren't they? Anyway, let's carry on with our countdown of the teams. I don't know what Astana would have in their musette, Richard, but there were a few days when it felt like they'd found a cause, something to unite the team behind, Mark Cavendish. Then, of course, he crashed out after that very near miss when he came so close to winning the stage in Bordeaux. And uh, yeah, even though they had a purpose, they didn't quite look like they knew how to execute it. The one disappointment for me, Alexei Lutsenko, who's normally a lot more aggressive. We did see him in the odd break, but really nothing came of anything that he tried. It was clear Lutsenko didn't have the legs. He was in an early break, wasn't he? And, and it, it, you just knew it wasn't going to be a successful, successful tour for him. With the loss of Luis Leon Sanchez as well, crashed out early, you know, so umpteen tours, so much experience, um, just sort of a tour to forget for Astana, really. Slim pickings in their musette, maybe an energy gel and a, and a cereal bar, yeah. something like that. Uh, EF not, Education. Not just one of those... A supermarket brand cereal bar. French supermarket brand cereal bar. Okay. That's, that's 90 calories. Okay. EF Education, they lost Richard Carapaz in that crash on stage one, of course. Esteban Chavez flattered to deceive and then he was also out. Rigoberto Uran was starting to look a little bit uh, his age, let's say. Magnus Court and uh, Alberto Betiol, who we would have picked as riders to mix things up in breaks, they didn't do much. Their tour saved by Nielsen Paulus, really, who had a very aggressive opening to the tour, was in plenty of breaks, had the King of the Mountains jersey and perhaps paid for all of the effort when it really came push to shove in that King of the Mountains competition. Worth mentioning James Shaw as well. James had a, had a great race, didn't he? And I think we were all hoping for more from him in the final week. Um, unfortunately, crashed out on stage 14 um, after having come in the top 10 at uh, the previous stage. So, yeah, just bad luck all round for EF. Uno X then. Team debutants, their first Tour de France, and seven of the riders in the eight-man team were riding their first tour, but they were aggressive and visible. They had some good good results in the mountains with Tobias Harland Johansson, and plenty to build on for the Norwegian team. And the last team for this little section, Groupama FDJ, David Gordou ninth, Thibaut Pino 11th on GC, no stage win. Uh, they won the hearts of France yesterday with Thibaut Pino. Uh, but probably a slightly underwhelming tour for Groupama FDJ. Maybe half a ham and cheese baguette for them in their musette. I don't know. I think I think one of those sort of extravagant but fairly light pastries that you get in French patisseries. You know that you cut into, but there's not a whole lot there. But it looks really exciting, and, and you you know you're kind of happy you've got it. I think that maybe sums up FDJ. Loads of anticipation but then mostly oh, air maybe, mostly yeah. air <laughs> okay well they are coming up to the final lap now aren't they so we should pay attention to the race and find out what's happening 
while we watch the finish of the race, let's hear from two of our contributors from earlier in the tour on their tour highlights, Francois Tomaso and Ian Boswell. Right, so my fondest memory of my last Tour de France, it's difficult, of course, not to mention my very own farewell party at Le Viscos on July the 6th. Uh, but in a way, uh, Thibaut Pinot's farewell party, I felt more emotional about it almost than uh, about my own farewell party. I mean, they, they had lots in common, you know, <laughs> probably much too much to swallow. And uh, yeah, I went a little bit too hard. I remember in my farewell party on the Pâté en Croûte, uh, the same as... Uh, Thibaut went probably a little bit too hard on Petit Ballon. And oddly enough, uh, Ballon in French, if you don't know, also means a glass of red wine. So, uh, yeah, Thibaut went a little bit too hard on the Petit Ballon. I, I, I went pretty hard on the uh, little glasses of red wine at my own farewell party. And like uh, like Thibaut, I struggled a little bit in the... In the last climb, I didn't have, my legs were not as good as the uh, uh, bacon coated gambas that we also had on the menu of my party at Le Viscos. But I also kind of resurrected in the last climb, uh, like Thibaut did by finishing fix, I think. In the penultimate stage of the tour, I, well, I kind of overlooked the dessert a little bit, but I, I had a little bit of strength left for the Armagnac. So, yeah, I mean, we, uh, uh, I don't have a corner to my name yet uh, in any climbs that I know of, but, you know, who knows, maybe it'll come one day. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, Thibaut Pinot's uh, final climb on the Tour de France was an emotional moment for me because I followed his career from the very beginning, uh, discovering discovering Thibaut in the Tour de Romandie, well, in his almost very first year as a pro. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, kind of um, you know, moving to see, to see him go. The, 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 the other moments that were important to me and were moving to me were Tadej Pogacar wins, to be honest, because I think Pogacar managed to win over the French hearts. Uh, we always love uh, beautiful losers. Uh, that's part of the French spirit, I guess. Not only uh, French spirit, I suppose. And I'm a little bit sorry for Jonas Vingegaard because he's, he's suffering from the Chris Froome syndrome. Uh, you know, he's kind of aloofness. Uh, and the fact, the, fact, the fact that he really dominates, you know, he's a, a way... Just a gear above the rest of the field is uh, not really what we like uh, in France. And uh, it, it's a pity because I know Vingard loves France. He has a house in Annecy. Uh, but yeah, that's the way it goes. Uh, no, I, I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, to see Pogacar being human, being nice, being fair play and being the, the classy rider uh, he is. So these were the, well, yeah, my, my main moments of the Tour de France. Hi, Lionel and listeners of the Cycling Podcast. I've made it back safely to Vermont and really been enjoying the last week of racing despite Pogachar losing a significant amount of time in the time trial and then on the Col de la Lowe's. I think we've seen some very uh, yeah, spectacular and emotional victories. And actually, as I record this, I just watched uh, Pogachar take another stage win. But my standout moments of this year's tour were probably two stages that I actually was not at. And those were the first two stages, the one into Bilbao and then into San Sebastian. 
I think those two stages coming straight out the bat of the Tour de France really set a precedent for how riders and teams approach this Tour de France. We didn't see the traditional big crashes in the first day, which I think kept a lot of riders in the race and motivated and healthy to keep fighting for stages. But to see Adam and Simon Yates battle it out on stage one, and then to see Victor Lafay take stage two uh, and break the Kofidis 15-year drought of stage wins of the Tour, those had to be my two highlights of this year's Tour from a from a fan's perspective, as someone who was at the race, covering the race, I think my standout moment would be uh, probably the Grand Colombier stage. I really enjoyed that. It was Bastille Day, and I'd hoped to ride to the top, but I didn't. Um, but I really just enjoyed the racing that was happening at that point and seeing Pogachar and Vingegaard really go toe-to-toe on numerous days in the Alps until Pogachar came, came apart. But this just sets a narrative for an exciting tour in 2024. So I hope you all enjoyed listening and Lionel, get home safe. We are delighted to be partnered with MAP, the clothing company from Melbourne. They have designed our brilliant cycling podcast jersey and range of accessories, all available from map.cc. That's M-A-A-P dot C-C. G'day, this is Jared from MAP and I'm the co-founder and the co-CEO. Some of the greatest moments I've had at MAP is we're not popped up in London or Montreal and I've been out on a taken my bike and I've gone out for a ride and then in the middle of nowhere I'll see someone riding in a map kit and it's just the overwhelming sensation of oh man look at that like here I am so far from home and there's map out in the road on that person enjoying themselves having a you know great time the feeling I get when I see someone wearing a, a map kit I feel like they're I know them and I wave and I even say g'day and I start talking and I forget because when it started, I did know everyone that was wearing it and I still feel like I know them. I'll stop and talk and say g'day. Oh, I love your kit. Well done. It's like the, the math family is getting bigger and bigger. And when you talk about the cycling podcast, jersey, I'll wear that a lot. It's one of my favorite jerseys and I get so many comments on that jersey. So I know when you see one out there, it stands out because it's very um, – bright and you know you can it's, it's not just a black kit it's quite colorful and i love that jersey and i can imagine if you see another one on the road you got to pull up next to them and say good day because you've like-minded if you've chosen to buy that jersey it's uh, you know they must be listening to the podcast or you know fans of map and yeah it's it's great it's like brings everyone together just it's like one big family a typical final day scene here in the Place de la Concorde where the team buses are parked and we've seen all of the the team staff having a beer before the race had even finished the VIPs and the riders families are all here as well we're outside the Bora Hansgrohe bus because there's going to be a party here isn't there in a few minutes there's some very excited uh, Belgians over there Jordi Meus has won the final stage of the Tour de France on the Champs-Élysées beating his fellow Belgian Jasper Philipsen again another very very close finish in fact I can't recall a closer finish between the top four riders on the Champs-Élysées the four of them spread across the width of the road there like that impressive stuff absolutely and I can't remember that either it's going to make for a great final day photo the four of them all just it never ceases to amaze me the way they can throw their bikes at the end of a sprint like that it's more or less what it came down to. Mayus is kind of the biggest sprinter in terms of his limb length, probably. And that's basically what made the difference today. He came around, didn't he? And then, uh, yeah, right 
sort of off the back back wheel almost probably popping a little wheelie as he went over the line and uh, indeed the the excited belgians who are also very tall um sus- suspected they might be mayus and indeed they are well there we go it was also very close between third and fourth Dylan Groenewegen was third, Mads Pedersen fourth, and then behind that front row on the line, Caseball, Biniam Gamay, Brian Kokar. There we are. And that's going to bump Bora Hansgrohe up our league table of teams, isn't it? But we also saw how much the peloton broke up on those final lap and a half of the Champs-Élysées circuit. In the old days, they always there used to be this pressure for everyone to stay in contact with a bunch. No one wanted the kind of... The, the, the embarrassment I guess of being dropped on the Champs-Élysées riders certainly in the 80s and 90s talk that way but these days we saw drop riders looking up at the screen to see what was going on in the race ahead of them Julian Alaphilippe was getting uh, cheers from the crowd we saw Adrien Petit who's had a rough old time for Antomarche coming in with a teammate for company but it was Jumbo Visma the seven of them all riding in a line making the most of the moment. All smiles for Jonas Vingegaard as he clinches his second Tour de France title in a row. They've been pretty inscrutable, haven't they, Jumbo Visma, throughout these last three weeks? And finally, they're allowed to smile. You know, and they're, and they're, yeah, you can actually see what it means to them. I mean, it, I think we, it's easy to be sort of a, a little bit harsh on them um, for that, for, for the, their sort of discipline, I suppose, is maybe is the best way of putting it. They don't show any particular sort of strong emotions. They seem very level-headed and even-keeled. Um, and and Vingegaard himself is sort of the at the head of that, isn't he? He's, he's unflappable, and he has been these last three weeks. Even though he's maybe lost time here or there, um, it's not been the perfect tour by all accounts, certainly when he's been dropped by Pogaccia, but... He's, he hasn't really ever shown uh, that it's got to him at all. And finally, we can see those big smiles and lots of hugs and lifting people up. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Well, before we carry on with our countdown of the teams, let's hear from Lizzie Banks, who joined us for a few days at the, well, where was that? That was in the Alps, wasn't it? Near to her adopted home. And this is her highlight of the Tour de France. Hello, cycling podcast listeners. It's Lizzie Banks here. My highlight of my three days on the Tour de France was, well, being at the Tour de France in person and coming from the relative comfort of watching the Tour de France on the sofa and being thrown into the absolute chaos of watching it on the sidelines. Um, My first day was uh, at the finish line in Morzine. I was standing just beyond the finish line in Morzine and there was such a thrill when the crowd absolutely roared as Pogacar attacked and went for it uh, for the bonus seconds up to the summit of the Jeu Plan and then gasps from the crowd just seconds later as he got stopped by the motorbike and my highlight was really just being in that moment and the thrill that you get by the side of the road when you're in there with the crowd. But on a personal note I also um, really relished the chance to spend some time with Ian Boswell um, Mine and Ian's paths have crossed many times. We've spoken through um, text, phone, we've done podcasts together, but we hadn't actually met in person. So it was really nice to be able to spend some time on the ground with Ian, have a couple of dinners together and do some podcasting together as well. 
Well, cheers, Denny, to uh, the first fantastic stage of the Tour de France fam. Uh, my name is Rose Manley, and I'm joined by Denny Gray of the British Continental, and we're interrupting your usual uh, listening with Lionel and Co. Just to tell you a little bit about the cycling podcast Feminin here on the ground at the Tour de France fam and uh, doing daily coverage, daily podcasts. Uh, Denny, tell everybody what they can expect from this race. Yeah, well, we're here in Clermont-Ferrand and the race is going to travel from here in the Massive Central to the Pyrenees with a stage seven finish up the Tourmalet. Uh, and, and of course, today, uh, without giving any spoilers, uh, we're here with the Puy de Dom overlooking us and the I think it's fair to say that the end of the stage certainly erupted into life. The Puy de Dom being a, a volcano, of course. Yes, if only you'd said that the other way yes. round. <laughs> if only. <laughs> but uh, there will be yeah, plenty of uh, corrections corners from us, uh, no doubt. Uh, over this week, we will, of course, be joined by Lizzie Banks of EF Education Tibco SVB, who will be giving us her professional eye uh, on everything that goes on um, this week which and it's sure to be a very exciting race uh, Lizzie Dynan said it was going to be like eight classic stages uh, in a row we've got a fantastic rivalry uh, emerging between Demi Vollering and Annemiek van Vluten which has been much anticipated uh, all year round so we finally get to see them go head to head on some of the iconic races and, and you know we're gonna uh, be enjoying the atmosphere enjoying the culture um all guided by francois thomaso uh of course um like every good cycling podcast should be uh, so please welcome come and uh, join us we're into mid-table now in our countdown of the teams i've put sudal quick step in here because Although Kasper Askreen salvaged their tour with a stage win, they would have expected a bit more. I mean, Askreen almost made it too, didn't he? Very narrowly beaten by Matej Mohoric. Julian Alaphilippe attacked a lot, but to little effect. Patrick Lefebvre usually likes a nice, full musette, you know, with a couple of bidons in there, plenty of energy gels, energy bars, some real food as well, but slim pickings for Patrick. Saved, saved very much by Askreen. And, you know, quick, quick stepper at... Uh one of the strongest teams in a, in a tour you know it seems like their victories come down to uh, either you know the, the the efficiency of their sprint lead out or maybe they'll have a couple of riders who excel and, and do things but really it was it was that solo virtuoso performance from Askarin in that last week which which redeemed them next Jaco Alula now they're the highest ranked team on the list without a stage win so perhaps a controversial placing here but Simon Yates was fourth overall and did come close on the opening stage of course losing out to his brother way back in Bilbao uh, I think they'll be disappointed Jill and Groenewegen didn't get the stage win and perhaps I'm being a little bit generous with their placing there he just just missing that little spark Dylan I think I think they can be happy a couple, you know tin of tin of Fosters and uh, what's a typical Lancashire beer to celebrate the Yates influence uh, Worthingtons. I'm going to let you dig yourself out of that <laughs> hole, Richard. Next on the list, Israel Premier Tech. Mike Woods won arguably the stage of the race on Le Puy de Dorme. I mean, an iconic place in Tour de France history. It may be another 35 years before they even go back to Le Puy de Dorme. And the way he won it was absolutely sensational. It was one of the best stages to watch. Uh, when we heard his account of the stage, just kind of 
brought it all to life really they also had some very strong performances from Chris Nylands who got in a couple of breaks and really turned himself inside out on the day to Belleville on Beaujolais where he came up short I think they would have expected a stage win and they got one next up AG2R Citroën the stage win for Felix Gall really papered over the cracks of Ben O'Connor's tour didn't it it, it did, but then we saw Ben O'Connor in that breakaway on stage 19 in, on terrain that really wasn't his to be on the breakaway in. You know, he was up there with Mohoric, Milan San Remo winner, Kaspar Asgrain, Tour of Flanders winner, and Ben O'Connor, a GC contender at the Tour, you know, mountain stage winner in the past. And he laid it all down in the hope that he might be able to pull off an upset. Yeah, and, and he laid it all down a couple of days earlier in support of Felix Gall on that Col de la Lowe stage. He was pretty... In, integral in keeping that breakaway um, and you know I bumped into Ben a few times in the mix zones in the last couple of mornings and um, he's uh, he's pretty happy like not disappointed at all maybe a little bit of personal disappointment he couldn't put the GC ride together that he wanted but AG2R lives and dies really on on a stage winning the tour doesn't it and they've got it so it's got to be got to be a success next up is Ineos Grenadiers now things were looking a little bit thin on the ground for them they had Carlos Rodriguez and Tom Pidcock very well placed overall and it looked like those high overall places might kind of ha- tie their hands behind their backs a little bit but then all of a sudden they broke out from being a GC team and went off hunting stages and Mikhail Kwiatkowski won one day and Carlos Rodriguez won the next and then Rodriguez looked like he might take that third place on the podium uh, but for a bit of misfortune really. Yeah can we put fortune cookies in the uh, in, in the musette for them kind of I, th- I think I'm still trying to get my head around Ineos at the Tour de France that now that they don't behave like Team Sky of old. They're not that ruthless, robotic GC machine. And I, I think as a fan, I like that. Um, but with that comes unpredictability, doesn't it? Next up. Cofidis. I mean, you could make a case for Cofidis being a lot, lot higher because expectations would have been rock bottom coming into this race. Hadn't won a stage for 15 years. Then Victor Lafay got one. And then before we knew it, Jon Izaguirre got another. And so you have to say a, a bumper musette for Cofidis compared to the last 15 tours. The big bottle of champagne that they've been saving goes in that musette. They're stretching it out. It's, a, it's an elasticated musette for the magnum in the... Next up, Lidl. Lidl Trek, to give them their full name. And, well, Mads Pedersen won that stage early on in the race, didn't he? The uphill sprint. And the King of the Mountains jersey for Giulio Ciccone. Kind of carefully worked away at that, really. Bided his time until the last week and picked his moments to get the points that mattered. It looked like a really clearly thought-out strategic victory that perhaps went a little bit under the radar because we were all focused on other things. I think that's right. It's, it's often the way with the King of the Mountains, isn't it? It does, you know, because there's a little bit of uncertainty around does it award the best climber? You know, is Ciccone the best climber in this race? Hmm, he's up there, but I'm not sure it's as definitive as, as the green jersey is for Philipson as the best sprinter, the yellow and white are for the, the be, for the best rider and the best young rider. So, um, yeah, Little have had a wonderful kind of big fruit bowl in there uh, every morning um, at the start. Have you noticed that lineup? Yeah, I, I haven't dared touch any. I mean, it looks it looks quite nice after a few days of low on fruit. But um, yeah, can we shove that in there for them? We can. A huge 
selection of fruit for Lidl Trek. Should just say, I mean, the, the the official title of the King of the Mountains competition, as we in the English world, English-speaking world, call it, is actually the Grand Prix des Montagnes, isn't it? So you know, it's not necessarily saying it's the best climber. It's the person that wins the classification, and the classification is uh, won by accumulating points at set points along the route. Anyway, to wrap up this part. Bora Hansgrohe, who leaped several places thanks to Jordi Meos's stage win here on the Champs-Élysées. It was already a pretty decent tour for them because they had the stage win for Jai Hindley and a day in yellow for Hindley. Let's not forget he, although he's a Giro champion in the past, this was his debut Tour de France. So seventh overall in the end and really a crash or two along the way probably compromised him in the last week. I think you can be pretty happy with that if you're Jai Hindley on a debut tour a debut that's uh, it's a very uh, appropriate pronunciation as Australian pronunciation of debut um, yeah and Bora are just over the moon aren't they the, the music's pumping I can smell beer on the on the breeze in <laughs> places the pizzas are out um, it does a lot for a team doesn't it that's that kind of uh, to cap a tour off like that so they'll be pretty happy well before we conclude our wrap up of the teams and reach the the final handful Let's hear from our very good friend Brian Nygaard who has been covering the tour for Danish TV and also Danish newspaper, a Danish newspaper. And I called Brian as we were making our way from Epinol where we set out this morning, Richard, all the way over to Paris. First of all, I think the racing has been fantastic. Uh, I was worried that it would be on the dull side seeing that the jersey was so secure for him after the time trial. The, the skepticism is something that I've that come to, uh, I mean, obviously live with because working in the same environment as you for, for major parts of the year, it's, it's almost like you, you know it's coming, but I, I've, I've started to, it started to annoy me in a different way, I have to say. Even if now I'm on the journalist side of the fence, I, I just feel like there's a, it's, it's more ideology than it's journalism. Uh, this the skepticism because in in any other discourse working as a journalist or even thinking intuitively as a normal person we, we need some kind of documentation to have new types of doubt or skepticism to arise and I feel like now it's almost just become like a, a game we play or, or like this yeah almost like a language game that that enters the press room in the last week and and can you, can you, I'm, I'm going to stop the rant now, Lionel, but can you imagine if, you know, they, they always ask the winner, and they, I'm sure they did that yesterday as well, or probably even earlier, seeing that his lead is so significant, that can we trust you? And, and you know, Wittgenstein, and this is becoming very philosophical now, said, if you can't imagine the answer, the question is not valid. No one is going to say no. Do you know what I mean? No one is going to say, yeah, by the way, no, you can't. You know, so I just despise a little bit that sort of like self-understanding in certain journalists when they ask that question. I'm sure Jonas Vingegaard was, was quite well prepared for it, especially after the time trial. And then, you know, I, I don't think there's a reason to be more suspicious because of the time loss of Pogacar, because that's the that's not I mean, obviously, Vingegaard was the stronger rider, but you can't really measure the skepticism around Vingegaard uh, in you know numeric quality of how much time. Uh, Pogacar lost you know that's that's not really that's not really Vingegaard's business in that sense uh, to be to be better or, or, or worse in the third week but I think it's uh, there's also a generational thing uh, you know in the same way that 
you and I get older and other journalists get even older than us and new generations you know come come out where you can almost say that they they were practically not even born in the worst years when the worst years of cycling you know hit the front pages and I'm not saying that that gives them a free pass I'm just saying that contextualizing the the generations that they that we see racing now at, a, at the highest level I think this is a worth as a perspective that's worth putting on it as well you know it's not it's not being a can't carry the past of cycling sh- uh, uh, past on his shoulder you know I don't think that's fair and and yeah I'm, I'm not sure that anyone asked him to do that but I think skepticism needs a little bit more to get off the ground I think that it, it, there's a beauty in the time trial that I think I've, I've come to like a lot more again especially if there's an interesting parkour in the way that we saw it also to Montelusari in, in the Giro and when the race equally as happened in the Giro when the race can't distinguish the strongest riders from each other they have to ride separately to find out who you know who that athlete is so kudos to the time trials for making the biggest comeback in the history of cycling this year it gave me immense joy when i saw uh Pogaccia win yesterday and it was a beautiful stage it was a stage that almost i i wasn't expecting it to be so great and i think the the moment that we saw that Pogaccia was able to get on his feet again within the limits, within the framework of the same tour. I think that sent a signal to, for us to be able to look forward to next year in a different way. You know, and there's been some speculation also in the Danish media, you know, is Pogaccia even going to race the tour again? You know, will he ever be competitive on the same level as Vingegaard? And I think he sent more than just a, a hint yesterday by, by winning and by being there. Because that, that was a really hard stage uh, as the last stage in the mountains of a tour. And then obviously saying goodbye in such a graceful way to, to Pino was also wonderful. And I think that this is sort of the nature of this tour, that the last stage that where the action was, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure that's going to be today, will be the one that you remember the most. You know, I, I, Grand Tours, they, they come and go, and I sometimes when I get too far away from them, I can't distinguish one from another, and that's probably also because I'm getting older as well. You know, it's all, especially those years when I worked on the team side of the fence, it's all a blur to me, to be honest, even even the one where I won, or was a part of the team that won with Carlos Astra. So I would say yesterday, and it made me sort of not be happy that it's over, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I don't mean to be rude because I enjoy working every single minute almost of this tour, but I, I really enjoyed yesterday. You know, I also enjoyed Askren's win. I enjoyed a lot of other wins. But, but there was just something about yesterday that wasn't anticlimactic. And that says a lot about this race when this was won with more than seven minutes. Kilometer Zero at the 2023 Tour de France is available for Friends of the Podcast subscribers. There's an archive of more than 100 special episodes with new ones released throughout the year and an annual subscription costs about the same as buying a cup of coffee a month. If you want to, you can pay more. For the first time, you can also sign up with a monthly subscription. So if you just want to see what it's all about, that might be the best option for you. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com and once you've subscribed, you'll get an email with instructions for how to add the feed to your favourite podcast app in just a few clicks. Support The Cycling Podcast by becoming a friend of the podcast. There'll be a pizza place somewhere near here, Richard, that's just had an order for 151 pizzas. I think that's how it works. I think I know which one it is. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I'm surprised they've gone there, to be honest. Let's not, let's maybe, not name and shame them. Maybe it's the only one that can... Uh, it, 
suitably large to cater for the numbers we're talking here. Indeed. Well, into the final countdown of the teams, Richard, and I've got a feeling you might be disagreeing with me here because in fourth place I'm putting Bahrain victorious for their three stage wins. Three very different stage wins, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, Peo Bilbao, Mate Mohoric and... Wout Poles. Wout Poles, of course. Poor old Wout Poles, who was, you know, five seconds of airtime before we went back to the GC battle. That was, yeah, that was, that was a shame for Wout to finally get his first Grand Tour stage win. Um, I, yeah, the, 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 what, what happened with Bahrain coming into this year's tour and the way that they've responded and, and turned it into such a positive. We heard from Fred Wright uh, the other morning, didn't we? And um, that... Although they don't have as many wins as the teams above them in this line or classification, there's, there was so much meaning behind them, wasn't there? There was, there was joy and there was redemption and there were different ways that they won as well. Um, and that for me counts a lot. I think Bahrain will be, yeah, sort of... Quite, actually, it'd be quite nice to make our way over to the Bahrain bus, actually, see what the mood is. It'd be quite interesting. Not, perhaps not one of uh, this sort of no holds barred joy that we're seeing here at Bora but but yeah they'll be they'll be happy with their tour won't they well Jai Hindley's just come back to the Bora team bus carrying a big yellow Tour de France sign which says Larence on it which is of course the town where he won his stage and got his yellow jersey I know your mission is to pinch a sign from a lamppost somewhere Richard have you managed to do that yet haven't yet no uh keeping my eyes peeled keeping my eyes peeled well, we're really into the teams who've got musettes overflowing now, aren't we? Third place, I'm going to put Alpes into Kerning because they had the four stage wins with Jasper Philipson and the green jersey wrapped up well before the midway point in the race. Uh, you could argue that there wasn't a huge amount of opposition in terms of the sprint finishes, uh, although obviously beaten today to spoil his 100% uh, record in sprints, I think. But the green jersey competition was done and dusted. I suppose with Matthew van der Poel, though, um, a bit of a peripheral figure, which is a shame for the tour and a shame for van der Poel, I think. Yeah, peripheral in, in the sense that we're used to seeing van der Poel, who is such a singular rider riding for himself. He, he performed such an important role for Philipson doing these, these lead outs as we saw again today on the Champs-Élysées and we haven't really seen that ride in, in Van der Poel and, and there is nobody else in this peloton who could do that who could do that kind of a lead out to bring a rider forward and just like blow everyone else off the wheels with 150 metres to go so in that sense it's been a tremendously successful tour let's not forget as well he's not finished a tour before so there's that as well, which I think is probably an important milestone for, for van der Poel. Probably no arguments about the top two, Richard, or the order that I've put them in. UAE Team Emirates won the opening stage with Adam Yates, had the yellow jersey for four days. Today Pogacar has been in the white jersey all the way through. Obviously, he was aiming to win the Tour overall, but they've got second and third places on the podium, and Pogacar's had two stage wins. I mean, in terms of our kind of our ranking being determined by how full the musettes are. I mean, we're we're really into kind of three or five course dinners now, aren't we? Not not just a meal that can be stored in a canvas bag. Yeah, three course dinner for for UAE. Um, 
I mean, were it not for a couple of days in the Alps that we'd be, yeah, who knows how this tour would have ended up. And um, that was really all it came down to, wasn't it? They matched Jumbo pretty much as a team. Um, arguably outdid them in the sense that they got two riders on the podium, which is no mean feat. Yates, Adam Yates has been a revelation this tour, I think, the way that uh, he's managed to step up. Um, and yesterday watching Pogaccia come back, we know that next year's tour is going to be hopefully as tight as this one. And finally then, Jumbo Visma, of course, won the tour with Jonas Vingegaard. He's been in the yellow jersey since stage six. He won the time trial in emphatic style. And crucially, they also won the team's classification, which I think it was, which one of the sports directors was it? It might have been Arthur Van Dongen made the point that they've never won it before and that they were really keen to get that as well and there was that comment in the press conference by Vingegaard yesterday where he said that observers may not have understood what their tactics were on a day-to-day basis but the team themselves were acutely aware of what they were trying to do and I think the comparisons with Team Sky and I mean you describe them as robotic in terms of uh, perhaps the, the lack of joie de vivre on the bike but I think in their defence, you would have to say they not only got the job done in pretty emphatic style in the end, but they did ride very differently to the way we've seen Team Sky ride when they were dominating the Tour de France. I mean, Team Sky never used to put one or two or even three riders in breakaways. They never really had another string to their bow. I know a lot of that's down to the kind of all-round brilliance of Wout van Aert. But I think Jumbo Visma deserve the credit for setting out with whatever their plan was and executing it in such a way that really when you look back yes Pogacar folded but they never really looked like they were rocking did they? No this sort of yellow wall weren't they? I think as well we were we were judging Jumbo on on what they did last year when they had Primoz Roglic kind of just like a wrecking ball on some stages in the way that only a kind of Grand Tour winner can be when they play that domestique role and Wout van Aert just ripping up the script in terms of what a domestique or uh, anybody really can do in the tour. I remember that, that ride into over Cap Grenet, you know, up in the, the north of France where we just rode away on that climb before the finish. And then, um, you know, it was a little subdued for Wout, wasn't it, this year? He wasn't quite as capable this year. Um, whether that's his condition or just the nature of the racing, I'm not quite sure. But, you know, remember what he did on that stage up the Juplan where he just kind of, Lazarus like resurrected himself and, and you know whether that was tactically sensible or not I'm not sure but um, yeah maybe we're missing a bit of that wow excitement and that's that's changed our time I think the wow factor the wow factor I'm gonna I was chatting before the tour to a Danish friend and, and he was talking about ceremonial pancakes um, which is what you receive uh, a sort of a pretty high honor in Denmark uh, Jonas Vingegaard had ceremonial pancakes in Copenhagen last year and uh, yeah 21 ceremonial pancakes shoved into the... Well, if the reports are to be believed, Jonas Vingegaard will now be going to the Vuelta with Primoz Roglic and Jumbo Visma clearly setting out to try and win all three Grand Tours in the same season. Roglic, of course, won the Giro just ahead of Geraint Thomas in May. And, well, you would struggle to look beyond that duo at the moment. I mean, that speculation at this stage, we're yet to have it confirmed that Vingegaard will definitely go, but that's pretty ominous for anyone else who's got their eyes set on the Vuelta next year's tour will undoubtedly be his big focus for 2024 and it will be interesting I can't see anything other than Tadej Pogacar coming back to try and 
uh, wrestle his crown back from Vingegaard. But then there's also the Remco question. Remco Evenepoel is going to make his tour debut next year and that will complicate matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Remco kind of the big unknown quantity, isn't he, in, this, in that factor and quite maybe how he'll change this rivalry 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 uh, between Vingegaard and Pogacar that um, yeah we'll have to we'll have to see and Sudal Quickstep will presumably have to construct some kind of Grand Tour support team around Evenepoel but that is for the future it's never too late for the 1101 Cappuccino get regular updates from the cycling podcast in your email inbox or the Substack app during the Tour de France Go to thecyclingpodcast.substack.com to sign up. Well, the familiar Tour de France podium music is playing behind us, Richard, and that can mean only one thing. The 2023 Tour de France has come to an end, but that's not all from the Cycling Podcast because it is over to Rose Manley and Denny Gray, who are already off and running at the Tour de France fam. I won't spoil the result, but their first episode from Clement Ferrand is online now, so give that a listen. They will be covering the whole of the Tour de France fam over the coming week. And to coincide with the start of the Tour de France fam, Stacey Snyder's cups and bowls will be going on sale tomorrow. That's Monday at 10 a.m. US East Coast time, which is 3 p.m. in the UK and 4 p.m. in Central Europe, and they are available from her Etsy page and will no doubt sell out in double quick time Richard that's basically a wrap from the Tour de France in Paris I'd like to say a big thank you to you for riding on the front and getting me through the final week hope I've given you a big enough big enough draft line or two uh, to shepherd you through your well, you were saying your first whole tour for a, for a couple of years so yeah how, how does it feel to have to have done the full tour again is, is, is there something kind of distinct in that in doing it from start to finish well yeah 2020 was my last full tour 2021 was slightly covid affected and i was unable to do the whole of last year's race but it's been great to be here from start to finish and see it all unfold and well the most rewarding thing has been working with well you richard and before you mitch and francois and ian and lizzie and just having a kind of a a, a rotating cast of characters around me and, and listening to your various takes on the tour as it's been unfolding and well you're all very different people and you've all brought something unique and I hope rewarding to the coverage this year I'm sure that the listeners will agree it's been a fantastic tour and uh, I'd like to thank all of you for your input over the last three weeks well, I'd like to, to echo that thank, I mean, thank you Lionel for the for the opportunity it's, it's been really interesting for me to see the tour through sort of podcast lens for the first time um and well just chapeau Lionel for for leading the cycling podcast through this race i'm sure um mitch ian lizzie and, and everybody would agree so yeah well done thank you richard well hopefully you won't be a stranger and you'll be back at some point in the future i know you've got a busy few weeks coming up but uh welcome any time to join us on the cycling podcast it's nearly time to have a nice relaxing beer and find somewhere to go to eat. We haven't got Francois here to book his favourite bistro for us, but I think we'll probably be OK. All that leaves me to do is to say a big thank you to a few people for helping the Cycling Podcast over the past three weeks. As I mentioned, 
Uh, Mitch Docker, Francois Tomaso, who retired at Le Viscos at the end of the first week. Ian Boswell, Lizzie Banks and Richard Abraham, who's been with me over the past week. But also Seb Piquet, who's phoned in with his, well, front row seat view of the Tour de France from the, the red car that follows the breakaway or follows the peloton. And to Brian Nygaard as well for his semi-regular dispatches. Also to Luke Durbridge, who Mitch caught up with over the first 10 days of the race. And to Peter Cosins and Laura Messica, who contributed towards Kilometre Zero episodes. We couldn't get the cycling podcast on the air without our fantastic production team, Tom Wally, Adam Bowie, Will Jones and Hugh Owen and a special mention for John Mooney who's been with us right from the start in 2013 10 years of service for the cycling podcast hats off to all of you and a big big thank you the beers are on me when I get home a big thank you also to our sponsors Science in Sport and Map and to our audio partners Audio Boom and to David Luxton for smoothing things behind the scenes and finally to Simon Gill who joined us for the first week of the tour and well rented us his very nice broom wagon for us to drive around in much appreciated thank you Simon and thank you Simon for being on the end of a phone at very short notice in Paris just to verify whether the underground car park was uh, was tall enough to accommodate his well wonderful very smooth driving van thank you Simon it was it did fit it did fit, yeah. You haven't now got an, an open top. Cabriolet. Yeah, cabriolet van. But most of all, thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all of your messages on social media and your emails. Hopefully you've enjoyed the 2023 Tour de France. And as I say, stick with us for the Tour de France fam and join Daniel and I when Daniel returns from his lone move to ITV, where he's been for the past three weeks will no doubt debrief the Tour de France and look ahead to the World Championship. So until then, thank you very much, Richard. Thanks very much, Lionel. Au revoir. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freib and Lionel Burney. 